Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Pete Brown, and today I have the pleasure to talk with Joshua Mitchell, who is the author of Tocqueville in Arabia, Dilemmas in a Democratic City. Joshua, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. This is a really interesting book, uh, a little different book than um, maybe some of your readers in the past have uh, expected from you. Um, before we get to this interesting book, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are now, where you're, what your background is. Sure. Uh, I have been at Georgetown since 1993, and uh, for most of that time I have been involved in the government department teaching history of Western political philosophy, basically uh, Plato through Nietzsche. And then in 2005, I was given the opportunity to step away from the chair position and get involved with the uh, startup operation for Georgetown School of Foreign Service and Doha Cutter. And I was very intrigued by the possibility. It's not something that's completely out of my purview. I was actually born in Cairo uh, while my dad was doing research on the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, his book is still the definitive work on the Brotherhood. And in my early years, because he could not find a job in area studies because those centers did not exist, I actually grew up uh, in Kuwait and in Yemen. So I have long familiarity with the Middle East. And in 2005, as I said, I went to Doha and intended, intended just to stay for three years and did and then came home and was immediately asked um, by uh, somebody I had known um, vicariously to come out to Iraq, and at that point, um, I thought, sure, I know how to build a university, so I went out and helped him build the American University of Iraq in Kurdistan from 2008 to 2010, and I've been back since, so I've been back and forth in the Middle East as well. Yeah, and, and the book reflects um, some of these, these different stops along along your way, and this is not a typical academic book, there was a, so there was a lot of uh, intellectual discussion in it. I wonder if you talk a little bit um, about the, how this book came to be. Uh, did you pitch this to the publisher as it is? Um, is this book that you set out to write when, when you began? Did you give us a little bit of the, the background? Well, in, after 2001 happened, I had, I won't call it a crisis, but, but I had really decided that the Middle East was my father's work and I was simply going to do the history of Western political philosophy. And when 2001 happened, it brought my world, um, the world that I had chosen to follow, the Western European American political thought world, into collision with the Middle East. And um, I wrote an essay, which appeared as an epilogue um, of, a, of a book that Jean Beth Elstein and I can't remember who else edited a few years back. And it was a very personal telling of uh, of my past history kind of an autobiographical purging, frankly. And I initially did not think it was going to go further, but I got great encouragement from Jean and a number of others who read it and said, this is, this is an entirely new voice. Uh, I'm, you know, I have enough German in me that I write very arcane uh, political theory works with 750 footnotes, and I had done three of those. And I kind of sat on it for two, three, four years, and then when I went to Qatar and started teaching, I realized that what I had begun there needed to be continued. And so I was teaching history of Western political philosophy, and it occurred to me that a new kind of book had to be written. Uh, I find a lot of the debates in political theory these days to be very well orchestrated and choreographed, but I'm frankly not pleased with the direction things are moving. Um, political theory, I think, begins 
largely because of World War II, and so it, it's a response to events, an attempt to plumb the depth of Western tradition. There's a view to making sense of those events. It strikes me that that's what political theory needs to do. There was some um, some turn because of 1989, very little because of 2001, almost nothing at all because of the financial crisis of 2007-2008, and I just decided I wasn't going to write another book that way. So I started with the same voice I had had in that one epilogue and then asked myself the question, how far can this go? And in the course of uh, my several years in Iraq, I got for in, a, in a Qatar, actually, I got a start on it. But frankly, most of it, much of it was written in Iraq uh, under very, very difficult circumstances. I was sitting there in my office and was able to reflect about the Middle East as a whole, about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, about the crisis of modernity, which I think to be very real there in the Middle East. And the book just kind of grew and grew and grew, and uh, it has very few footnotes, as you know, just a few references to pages. There's no substantive footnotes in the book. And I shopped it around, uh, and a number of publishers were thought that it was well-written, but they said, well, this just isn't the kind of thing I did. They do. So I talked to John Trinescu at the University of Chicago, who published my first two books. And it was a long shot, because they generally don't do this sort of thing, but he read it. He said, well, you know, we do lots of Tocqueville, and I think we want to do this one. So it was a happy surprise that John picked it up uh, after my last book, which was 1995 with them. So there you have it. And uh, a lot of the book is, is um, reflections on literature, but also reflections on your own past, and also the past of your students. Um, recall a conversation in 2005 that you had at, uh, at a cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you could recount a little bit of this conversation and what you took from it, because it really does set up a lot of uh, a lot of questions that go on. So tell us about that conversation. Well, in in other parts of the book, I have extended reflections on on the 1960s, and I do that um, for a number of reasons. Um, First, the book is not just written for an American audience. It's written for my Middle Eastern students as well, who don't really understand the 60s. Second, you know, the other great book about the 60s um, that's within our orbit is Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind. And I, I wanted to both, in a way, amplify his thoughts, but to show that it wasn't just the 1960s. It was something so much deeper going on. It was a part of a, a general movement that Tokyo had seen happen or it's been developing, you know, 170 years ago, 180 years ago. Um, so that was one of the reasons I moved in that direction. So I, I'd always, the 60s was very powerful for me. I was, I grew up in Ann Arbor, lots of things happened there. And then when I met this gentleman uh, in Saudi Arabia, or from Saudi Arabia, who is really the first substantive person you're introduced to in the book, I realized that the 60s was not just America, that there was a 60s generation in in Europe, that, as I say in my book, that they too were interested in throwing off their fathers, but that meant something very, very different to them. It meant throwing off the legacy of national wars, and so whereas in America, throwing off our fathers meant innovation and experimentation, in Europe, what it meant was throwing off the fathers of their nations and so creating the European Union. And then, as I note in the book, this very wise man said, you don't understand, we too had a 60s generation, and like you, we were throwing off our fathers, and the fathers that we were throwing off had made this halfway capitulation to the West, uh, which we found very unpalatable. And so, 
you have a 60s generation in Saudi Arabia, which in in some of its parts uh, became interested in the process of what Tocqueville and Rousseau and Weber would call the re-enchantment of the world and the return to Islamic fundamentalism. So three different 60s generations, three ways of throwing off the fathers. I raised this this notion of throwing off the fathers because this is Tocqueville's fundamental claim that the breaking of the links between the generations that you once had in the aristocratic age is characteristic of the democratic age. And it seemed to me that this would be a way to introduce an issue that's larger than the 60s generation, introduce the, the grand movement of history, which is the delinking of persons. Much of um, uh, the discussion is about actually teaching Tocqueville in this new environment, that a new campus state that you're a part of. Um, and, and you teach this, this course, which I think you've taught many times uh, in the States, about the history of Western political thought. And in that class, uh, Tocqueville appears somewhat late in the syllabus, later in the, in the semester, I would imagine. I wonder what you expected the reaction of your students to be to uh, Tocqueville. Uh, before we have the strategic and preparing strategic for the first time, what did you anticipate their reaction to based on your previous teaching? Well, um, in the book I mentioned that my first exposure to international students was not actually in Qatar. I had, I had moved back and forth to Latin America for the for three summers um, before 2001, and what I had encountered there was a great deal of resistance to uh, to liberal thought, broadly understood, economic liberalism, political liberalism. Um, and this, of course, had happened after 1989, when in North America the understanding was that Karl Marx had been repudiated. Um, and my wonderment there in Latin America, and also in Lisbon, where I taught for a bit, uh, was how the kind of triumphal understanding of liberalism had not taken hold down there. There were deeply deeply suspicious of liberalism, as I say in the book, they uh, they had a kind of tacit appreciation and endorsement of Marx and Rousseau without having read them and a deep suspicion of Smith. So I had already had some encounter with, um, with Latin American and European, let's call them anti-modern tropes, anti-modern suspicions. Uh, and when I went to the Middle East, I, I knew there would be something like that, but I think the big surprise was that the language was almost identical. So it didn't matter, uh, it didn't matter that these young people came from a different religious tradition, it didn't matter that, whereas in Argentina, standards of living were falling, whereas in Qatar and Lisbon they were rising at that time, it, none of that mattered. And what struck me then was that there had to be some larger explanation for why young people around the globe spoke really unreflectively using the exact same tropes, uh, kind of anti-modern tropes. And what occurred to me was that colonialism had an awful lot to do with it, that either because of European education going there or because the young people over generations had gone to Europe, uh, they had imbibed a certain suspicion of the liberal project. And there are, of course, a lot of European thinkers who have that, Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, Heidegger. And so what I was hearing though it was ostensibly an authentic Muslim response, was actually not that. It was it was intermixed anti-modern tropes uh, along with the Islamic positions they were trying to, to make. So the mystery became why it was these, um, these 
anti-monic tropes are so prevalent. And at that point, I realized that Tocqueville was even more important than I had thought because this was what Tocqueville was writing about in the 1830s. Democracy in America is not written for Americans. It's written for the French who are wrestling with the question, can we go back and re-enchant the world? Can we save the aristocratic past? Or how do we live in this democratic age? So I was expecting of my students a certain resistance to Democracy in America because it seemed to be a book about America. I was quickly able to dispel that. Uh, but then when they started voicing their serious concerns, it sounded remarkably like what I'd heard in Buenos Aires and in Lisbon. So at that point, I realized that there was a kind of global challenge here, which Tocqueville had seen already, which was in the face of this movement into what he called the democratic age, how are people going to respond to it? And he had very clear understanding. They would try to re-enchant the world, or they would try to overthrow the current delink condition through, through revolution. And that's why Tocqueville, in my view, and I think I convinced my students, is, is the political theorist or social theorist for the 21st century because he confronts the problem that, that everyone around the world is faced with, namely, how do you deal with modernity? Now, who, who were these students that, that you taught there? Um, what are they, where were they headed after your class? Um, have you have you been in touch with any of them? Um, has this as your class, we all hope that our teaching stays with our students. I wonder, given what you interpret as a, as a pretty meaningful experience in this literature, um, uh, um, gather that this book has fit into their uh, next eight years or four years or five years. What, what role does it play in those the, the lives of the students that now live after the class? Yeah. Well, the, uh, we were really lucky. The first-year students, whenever this apology starts up, the first-year students are always going to be the ones who take the biggest risk, and their parents are, are willing to to, uh, to endorse that. So we had a spectacular first-year class, and some of them were cutteries. But I want to be clear, the book Tocqueville in Arabia is not just a series of reflections on my series of reflections on my cuttery students. Because the students came from the Levant, they came from India, they came from the Philippines in one case. We also had some from Eastern Europe. We actually had a Marine who was stationed there, who was had finished up and wanted to join too. So it was this really wonderful group of about 20 or so, 24 students from Qatar, but really around the world. So it wasn't just Qatari students. Um, it, it took time, I and mean, I had them over the course of several years, and what I realized is that you have to build a relationship of trust, of course, with American students, but but when you're overseas, it takes a little bit longer, and, and I think the key there is just to listen, and I tell my colleagues that I learned more about Western political thought while I was teaching them, because I had to listen to questions of the sort I would never, ever get in the United States, so for example... In the United States, when I teach elements of political theory to my undergraduates, it is universally true for all of them, a hundred of them or so that are in my class, that democracy is the highest political form. In Qatar, there were students, and I don't remember, I think some of them might have been Qataris, but they weren't just Qataris, who, who would look at me and say, Professor Mitchell, you don't understand. Constitutional monarchy is the highest form of government, and your American students are, are so disillusioned, they're so delusioned, delusional that uh, that they don't understand the, the highest political form here. So I was dealing with a, a universe of ideas that were completely different than the ones on the main campus. 
So that was refreshing for me. Um, I also, the second author I teach was St. Augustine, City of God. And I had no trepidation about it. I think there's some sense that in the Middle East, they, they don't want to talk about Christianity, they don't want to talk about religion. And I'm sure in some quarters that's true, but I had really, really refreshing conversations with my Muslim students about Christianity. Um, they they range broadly in terms of what they want to do. Some ha- are very well connected in, uh, because of their families. Others, not so much. Uh, they Some of them stayed, some of them left. Uh, I left before the first class graduated, but I heard secondhand that they were running up and down the halls always talking about Tocqueville. So I took this to be a very serious success. Um, and when I go back there this spring, I'm going to be teaching my Tocqueville class again. So uh, it's, a, it's a great group of students. Some of them will end up being political leaders. Others will be in business. Others will drift off and do who knows what. But uh, it was really a wonderful book of students. Yeah, I, I wonder, you, you end the book with an epilogue that reflects a little bit about your, your more recent experiences with rat. for it, namely United States or American higher education, 
So I've come away thinking that the next great challenge is global higher education. And I think particularly for political theory, this is important because, as I said at the outset, so many of the debates have become sterile and there's a, a growing suspicion that the canon could do anything for us. My view is that the canon is incredibly important now. In fact, it's more important now than it ever has been. But I don't mean it as a defense for an existing tradition. I mean it rather as a kind of resume of the existential possibilities that a civilization can know. And so I want to bring those those books from each canon into conversation. And it strikes me that that's really the challenge of the 21st century um, for, for young people around the globe. Because in the Middle East, they will quickly tell you uh, that what I call liberal triumphalism is not going to work, that democracy is not going to come. And then many of them will launch into a kind of uh, indignation using uh, post-colonial tropes, and I'll sit and listen and say, yes, you're absolutely right about all the all the injustices that, that you have uh, incurred at the hands of the West. And then I say to them, and now how are you going to build a world? And they don't have an answer. Now, the happy news is there are a number of young people who realize that they're going to have to plumb their own traditions to figure out how they're going to move forward. And this, to me, is a spectacular development. And if we can set up global education um, to be able to help retrieve that, then I think we can have the kind of civilizational, global conversations that we need to have. Um, And as I said, the happy news for political theory is that that raises it up from the dead, where it more or less is now. Um, And then it can and make a real serious contribution to global education. Yeah, I think as, as you can all tell, this is a, a, a book uh, that's even theory, but also in some of the catalog, and also about also has one of the, the better book uh, covers, I think, uh, of the year. Thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Sure.